0: Well, it is Netflix binging season uh, for many of us, and this is a holiday tradition that uh, when you have that much spare time, of course, you've got to catch up on whole weeks of shows, months of shows uh, in just a short period. That's one of the beautiful things about the internet era is that it used to be, for those of us who are old enough to remember, that if you really liked a show, you'd watch it, and then you'd have no means of watching any other episodes um, until the following week, and uh, and if you missed any, you had to wait till the end of the year when they would do reruns, and it was a painfully slow process. Um, unlike today, where I could sit down and, as I did this past week, and with my day off, and binge almost the entire uh, second season of The Crown or the third season of The Crown, the new season of The Crown, which on one hand has been good, and those of you who aren't Crown people, um, I miss the previous characters a lot. But uh, needless to say, it's these kind of series, particularly the ones about British royalty, that have become uh, fascinating again to the people who, like me, are entertained by uh, dramatic revisits of history. Um, I am enamored with the concept of royalty, and it is odd to me that there is within Americans this these, this tension where we would be a people that were our country born resisting a king, and yet we're as fascinated as the next person by the idea of seeing the the pomp and circumstance, the the amazing uh, uh, regality of. Of British royal experience, and and really, it, because I think we're kind of cousins to the Brits, um, it's their experience um, that I think is fascinating. Um, the interesting thing is the the British, uh, obviously, at one point in their history, stripped the royalty of having the absolute rule, but they hung on to this. They hung on to the romance of, yeah, and, and a small state role for the royals, but even they couldn't completely detach from it. There's something really majestic about it all. To give you an idea of how big a deal this is internationally, in 2018, um, 29 million people uh, watched Prince Harry and actress Meghan Markle get married, 29 million people. It's almost the entire state of California population. That's a lot of people watching a wedding. Um, he, bet, he beat his brother, Prince William and Kate Middleton. They, uh, uh, they only had 23 million people watching their wedding back in 2011. But neither of them have gotten even close to the record that was set when their mother was buried. 2.5 billion people around the globe watch the funeral of Princess Diana. I mean, those numbers are staggering, particularly when you contrast them with how many people showed up at the incarnation, the birth of the Messiah. A few people knew what was going on, and almost all of them strangers to Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. We read about another collection of folks who were part of the story of Jesus' birth, And the first two verses of our passage today speak of those things. Uh, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, uh, Herod the king, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. These magi were now participants in this process. They were going to be spectators at the birth of the king of kings as he is incarnated into our world. If you don't know who magi are, they were astrologers. And in Persian, in particular, where these uh, magi came from, they played a prominent role in the court life. This is true in many of the eastern states. They were advisors to these kings. Uh, their insights were derived from Uh, astronomical uh, observation and it produced a type of astrology not quite like ours but it's you know the uh, the astrology of our day Um, but through it somehow they concluded that an important royal birth had taken place in Palestine so they they haul out thinking they got a state visit to make and they trek all the way through the desert virtually to get to this place And they run into people who represent King Herod, and they say, where's this king birthed? This is news to King Herod, by the way. And uh, their enthusiastic and well-intentioned pursuit of this new king is this stark, in this context, in this passage, starkly contrasted with the obviously reluctant, but what would turn to be hostile response, almost paranoid response of King Herod. And as we work our way through the Gospels, uh, and in particular the Gospel of Matthew from which this passage is taken today, what you see is that this, this these two people, these two groups, the kings versus, uh, uh, I mean, sorry, the Magi versus the king, is meant to this juxtaposition these two groups who are now... Uh, having very different responses to the birth of the Messiah, is meant to foreshadow the tension associated with Jesus' presentation of his kingdom, his gospel of grace. Uh, There was a group of people who were ruling the Jewish leadership that resisted. And then there was a group of Gentiles, a group of foreigners who received him. Uh, we sing joy to the world. We sang it this morning. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. I realized recently, and it's strange how this works. Uh, you can read passages of Scripture your whole life, and then go, "Oh, I've never seen that before." And it dawned on me after singing this song for all of fifty-four years that there was an intentional, lyrical um, connection to Jesus and his family not finding any room at the inn. So this, let every heart prepare him room. There's this connection to the idea that when they brought Jesus and they came to Bethlehem, there was really no place for him. And in people's hearts, oftentimes, that is the case as well. And today we'll celebrate Advent joy. And I want to look at the kingdom of Christ, uh, and joy as it relates to this king coming. Our earth must receive its king, but today we'll see that joy won't be a part of the experience of meeting Jesus um, if his kingdom is a threat to your kingdom, or perhaps you misunderstand the purpose and the means and what he means by his kingdom. And most importantly, if you don't and aren't willing to receive him and make room in your heart for him as king. So let's talk about Advent joy by looking at the king. And what we see first in this passage is that the king's coming is a threat to our kingdoms. And I say ours because we can point the finger at Herod, but in reality, This is true for all human beings, naturally speaking. We set up our own agenda, and when Jesus comes in and says, "This is my agenda for you," we're like, "Hey, hey, keep your distance, dude!" And this is really what's going on in the human experience. Herod says here in the passage uh, had was troubled in his heart when he heard about this king. When these magi came along and said, "Where is this king? We saw his star." Um, all of a sudden now, he wanted to know where where and what is going on. He summoned these wise men, the passage says, and and secretly dispatched them to Bethlehem under the guise of wanting to come and worship too. But in actuality, Herod was using them to locate and spy out a threat. So why did Herod fear this little baby? Well, historically... um, in 40 BC, Jewish rebels and the Persians joined together to force the Romans and Herod out of Palestine. And then three years later in 37 BC, the, the Herod and the Romans took back possession. And so ever since that moment, there was an ongoing tension that existed between the Jewish leadership and the Romans. There was always brewing beneath the surface this fear, and every now and again you'd see these rebellions sort of pop up, and Rome would come down on them hard. And so when Herod hears about, specifically from the mouths of these Persians, hey, where's this king? You know, all sorts of memories begin to flood. He has a little PTSD from of four decades earlier experience dealing with the Persians and Jewish rebels. Well, uh, Herod being on the edge, Scripture says that naturally speaking, all humans have this same antipathy towards authority. We We don't like, we don't see another king coming in and ruling us as anything we would want anything to do with. The U.S. is especially resistant to kingly authority, so much that our Constitution was written to prevent one branch of government from becoming too powerful. Uh, And we're equally as hostile towards God's kingdom rule over our life. There's a natural rebellion, and it's particularly brewed in the West, you know, we, we really, really, really are about our individual rights. And so when Jesus, as king, comes in and says, I created you, I'm the king, you're going to be part of my kingdom, I'm going to rule, there is something in us that goes, Egh. I mean, there's a pushback that might be appropriate as it comes to earthly kingdoms, but with regards to the divine, the creator, we need to revisit this. Jesus came at a time when you and I were, by Scripture's declaration, enemies to him. Romans 5, 10, through 10 and 11 says this, <coughs> For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received Reconciliation. There is a rejoicing that takes place when we encounter this king and we are not threatened by his kingdom rule in our life. Uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, was an early American theologian. Uh, Many credit him uh, in New England with being the spark or the person that kind of lit the the, uh, great awakening in colonial America. And... uh, Edwards was not a touchy-feely kind of guy, uh, the quote I'm going to give you here is from his, um, uh, his sermon entitled, uh, Man's, Men Naturally God's Enemy. He also had one called, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Not your seeker-sensitive titles, okay, granted, but he had some great things to say, and one of them was this, he said, men in general will own that they are sinners, in light of Romans 5, he's, right, he's speaking these things. There are few, if any, whose consciences are so blinded as not to be sensible that they have been guilty of sin. And most sinners will own that they have bad hearts. They will own that they do not love God so much as they should do, that they are not so thankful as they ought to be for mercies, and that in many things they fail. Yet few of them are sensible that they are God's enemies. And the scriptures would declare <clears throat> that if we aren't careful, when the kingdom, when Jesus comes, we will be like Herod, and we will automatically start thinking, is he going to get in my space? Is he going to take over and, and negatively affect where I think I'm going, what I think I'm doing? When we speak of Jesus' rule, we're not talking about a political or national agenda. I feel really compelled to say that these days. Um, Jesus' kingdom is above all kings, as he is. Uh, Jesus' kingly rule takes priority over kings and presidents and earthly cultures. Uh, our king's directives are what guide our lives. And our commitment to make his name famous is our purpose in all that we do. And that's why our kingdoms, the things we set up for our own glory and benefit, are threatened by Jesus and his kingly arrival. But we need not be threatened. As those who welcomed the king, be it the Magi in this particular case, or later on as we see the metaphor drawn out in Scripture, the Gentiles, and most of us by birth and by nationality are Gentiles, um, unless you were born, your heritage is Jewish, there's almost everybody in our country and other places around the world that have come here to make home uh, we're, we're all in that boat of saying we have been made fortunate recipients. We have been engrafted into, we have been now included into the kingdom of God. Once exclusively Israel's purview, now we're all in this. And so when you once didn't have the luxury of being a citizen of this kingdom, and now you're given this luxury and they're saying you can be in the kingdom, you, you tend to appreciate it with all of the intensity of Um, the issues around immigration that fill our nation, and particularly this part of the world, um, people want to come to our country to make a better life for themselves. I mean, that's why people come here. And this is the promise that Jesus is bringing with his kingdom. He's saying, I I want to have you come into my kingdom, and I promise it will yield a better life. And this is the second thing. The king's coming is a threat to our kingdoms, but this is A kingdom that we have to more clearly define. The king's coming was foretold to David's kingdom first. All right, David's kingdom, Israel, is the one who received this promise. If you receive his kingdom, then you'll enjoy and experience the kind of Christmas joy that we're talking about. Verses 5 and 6 of Matthew 2 say, they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Uh, We sing, O little town of Bethlehem, uh, with very little appreciation for the history of the city. It was the prophet Micah who foretold the birth of the Messiah In Bethlehem, quoted here in Matthew, it's Micah 5, 2. Bethlehem, interestingly enough, was only five miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, For some reason in my head growing up, I had Bethlehem as a a long, long way from Jerusalem. If you want to know what five miles is, that's the Apple Store in Old Town, Pasadena, to the DMV in East Pasadena. That's That's five miles, I charted it for the purposes of being able to express how profound this miscalculation was on my part. I mean, I'm like, that's how far it was? I mean, it just always to me seemed like, oh, little town of East Pasadena. You know, you're like, that's not as far away as I thought it was. Needless to say, historically speaking, this city had significance because it was the birthplace of King David, Uh, David's kingdom was the high point in Israel's history. He was the archetype of Jesus, uh, a king who would come to save God's people from their enemies and establish a glorious kingdom. Uh, The prophet Micah declared that another king was coming who was greater than David. The Messiah would be king over every other king and Lord over every other Lord. And and Jesus attempted to explain this to Israel Israel's leaders of his day, those who were attending to the kingdom of David at the time, albeit under Roman occupation. David's people, David's kingdom, foretold that this is coming, rejected this Messiah. They rejected Jesus' kingdom because they misunderstood what Jesus' kingdom was to be. Jesus' kingdom is not one where a powerful human sits on the throne and forcefully compels obedience. Instead, Jesus' kingdom is ruled by him through transformed hearts. This is the interaction Jesus had with the Pharisees about David's kingdom and who Jesus was. Now, in Matthew twenty-two forty-one 41 through 46, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David, he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. A bit embarrassing for them to not be able to understand what Jesus was talking about. And the reason they couldn't comprehend it is because they were looking at Jesus' kingdom through a completely different lens. Now, I've had LASIK surgery, and so I have reading glasses. Now, if you're wondering why I use them sometimes and not, it's simply because of this. Um, I print my sermon notes in huge, like 18-point font. So, like, you know, honestly, uh, this is fine. I can read it from a distance. As a matter of fact, the further back I get, the clearer it becomes. But when I read from a book or some other notes and the text gets small, i got to put on a lens. Now it makes it really clear, All right, especially if I get up close. This lens is what prevents us from understanding what Jesus is really after when he says, I'm the king. For the Israelites, it was a lens that said, you're going to come, And like David, you're going to establish an earthly kingdom where there's going to be a human being who puts Rome in their place and compels obedience. The Jews wanted another King David. Jesus was making it clear that his kingdom was much bigger, and so was he. D.A. Carson says this, when Jesus said the kingdom was at hand, he not only meant it was impending, he meant that He himself is the king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's not establishing a kingdom where humans would reign. The kingdom in our passage, we can see it foretold to David's kingdom. We also see that the king's coming was a threat to our kingdoms. But now we look at what makes the king's coming joyful. And it's the king's coming makes Citizens for his kingdom. This is the joy, the ceremony of being brought into this kingdom. I am now a citizen of this country. And you, we imagine the joy that people have when they finally get their citizenship, their U.S. citizenship, and all the rights pertaining to that citizenship. The, the, the thrill that must be. And some of you have actually experienced that. You know, where you came from another country, and we all did at one point, except for unless you were a Native American. Everybody's an immigrant in our country. That's one of the great things about our country. So at some point in every family history, there is this moment where people become citizens of this country, and it's a tremendous moment of joy. This is what is being declared here. And you see it in this passage. Verses 11 and 12, and going into the house, speaking of the Magi, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Uh, there were two responses of the Magi to witnessing the Messiah, experiencing the King of Kings, Jesus, the Lord. And these two responses were the first to worship him, to praise him. And then next, they gave what they had, the gifts they had brought for him. And then ultimately you see this that they they gave him love by obeying the Lord's command. They were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. They complied with that. And not begrudgingly, they actually complied because they had experienced God in such a phenomenal way. And it can't be understated the risk they took by ignoring the earthly King Herod in his country. They were willing to lay down their lives, not because they felt forced to, they obeyed God because they had genuinely encountered Him. He had guided them to this child, this King. And then when they got there, the, the experience of being in the presence of the incarnate child, the Son of God, the King, and getting to see the birth of Jesus. And then on top of that, in their sleep, God whether it's through the angels or through his spirit or however he brought it about, he spoke to them and told them, you're on the right path here. Follow me. See, these experiences with God produced within them a willingness, a heart for them. It's interesting, this picture is pretty common if you look around at pictures of um, the experience of the the magi coming to Jesus. (coughs) Excuse me. But it is uh, also one I think that symbolizes a substantial problem in Christianity today. Uh, Here in this picture, you see the Magi get to the manger where Jesus is. But if you take the contents of Scripture as truthful and factual, then this picture is actually incorrect. Uh, Our text tells us that they they went to the house and went inside. See, when they initially, when when Joseph and Mary initially got to Bethlehem, there wasn't any room for the end, but there were days that separated the birth of Jesus from the arrival of the Magi, and apparently a room opened up during that particular season. Um, And if Christians are going to remain faithful to what Jesus taught his disciples to do, and by extension what he told us to do, we're going to have to take our marching orders from Scripture. And I know it's a small part, and you think, oh, Lord, the Presbyterian in you is coming out. You're picking the script, you're picking theology part. And, and I'm like, yeah, I know, but this is, this is important. See, you know, there's a mythology about Christianity that exists, and people love to say things, I just think Jesus was like this. And, and in our culture, it's like, oh, great. Well, you think what you want about Jesus, and I think what I want about Jesus, and we'll all just go on our merry way. If the, if the Christian is going to be able to stand up to the Herods of the world. You're going to have to know you heard from the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. And thus saith the Lord is what the Magi heard. And their boldness in response to their encounter with Jesus is a picture of what happens when people realize he's the king of kings and he's the one speaking to me. When Jesus came to us, he was coming with the intention of welcoming all who would believe into his kingdom by his grace alone, which should produce and illicit worship. It should produce a joy that naturally would compel us to say, I, I'm celebrating something that has happened to me. Uh, we speak of the response of Israel to Jesus. And this is really from the prologue of the gospel of John, which I want to read for you now because it's important. John 1, 9 through 14, the apostle John writes by the Holy Spirit, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And, of the, wor- and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the joy of Christmas, The king's coming has, has, it is because he wants people to be received into his kingdom. He wants them to receive citizenship that comes by virtue of faith in him. He came to his own people first, as even Paul would say in Romans 1. The gospel first came to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And when the Jews would have none of it, Jesus went to the Gentiles. And now he's saying to all, regardless of where you came from, regardless of what country you're from, regardless of where you claim your secondary citizenship in this world, your primary citizenship is to be in the kingdom of Christ. The king is calling you into his family. He's, he's saying if you believe in him, he'll give you the right to become the children of God. You take when you become a citizen of the United States, they give you history quizzes that most citizens in america couldn't pass so we've got people coming into our country becoming citizens who have a better understanding of what went on in american history than most american citizens do and there's all sorts of requirements and 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 when you say well how do i become a citizen of the kingdom of god there's only one requirement and that's that you make room for him in your heart and say you know what i'm gonna let you be my king I'm going to to receive you. The language in John 1 is very similar to what we sing in Joy to the World. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And then heaven and nature sings. You sing. It is with this same grace that you experience a joy. It is this grace that produces the joy at Christmas. A king is born, and with him the promise of hope for a future. But joy will not be the experience you have at Christmas if his kingdom is a threat to your kingdom. Or if you perceive the purpose of his kingdom differently than he intended. Or if you do not personally receive the king. That is Advent joy. Let us pray.